Good morning, everybody. That was okay. It is a good morning, whether you believe it or not. And I'm so happy to be here. It has been four weeks since I have been able to preach, but I have benefited for four weeks from those who have brought God's word here and just have been shaped over the summer by uh, precious uh, men uh, who have given uh, their time and attention to care for us through the Word of God by preaching to us over these past several weeks. We are still in a study in the book of Romans, and so I encourage you to click there, turn there, whatever serves you. We will be in Romans chapter 4 as we finish up uh, the chapter. Romans chapter 4, we'll look at verses 13 through 25, Romans 13 through 25. So in Ranjur Lock fashion, when you're there, say, I'm there. Okay, that was lame. Um, okay, we'll try it again. When you're there, say, I'm there. I'm there. That's great. I think we can read now. Let's go for it. I'm going to read the entire passage, verses 13 through 25. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, and not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning, concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses, and raised for our justification. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, I ask that the words of my mouth and our mouths and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. You are my rock my Redeemer. We owe our lives wholly to you. 
And I pray that in this moment that you would help our hearts and our minds to focus. That you would remove pride that might keep us from receiving your good word. That God, the humility that we need would be a posture of, I am needy, O God, and you are not. So please give. Give to us more of your son, Jesus. Cause us to have scales removed from the eyes or hardness of the heart to be pulled away. Father, please chisel down to the depths of our soul so that we might adore Jesus today. Lord, I ask that as a church we'd be unified around the beauty of Christ. and We would live and be a community that reflects the love of Jesus and the grace of Jesus. So please come, have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Hours two? Really? It's one thing to celebrate somebody else's victory. It's another thing to be told that that victory will also be yours. So I'm watching the Olympics. I find it fascinating. I love them. And, you know, you pay attention to things you don't pay attention to for, you know, many years. And now they land on your TV screen and you're able to watch some of these things going on. So Olympic gold for the U.S., Suni Lee, Caleb Dressel, Katie Ledecky, and a host of others from the new sport of three-on-three basketball, which I found fascinating and loved, to surfing. And we also won golds in shooting. And it was just it's just a lot of fun. Now, we celebrate these stories. It's good to hear the backstory because they become people and you kind of get invested and then you start cheering. You know, it's just a lot of fun. Their hard work, their victory. I'm also told that whoever wins a gold medal will get $37,000 for their gold medal, which is pretty cool. You know, that's good for them. Now, we celebrate these things, but what if I told you That somehow you, you would also get a gold medal because of their gold medal and you would get $37,000 because of their gold medal. What would you say? Sweet, right? Like, yes, I'm all in. Okay, this is good. And some of you would be confused. How does that work? You know, I don't understand. Well, you can kind of take another scenario. Let's say your neighbor inherits a million dollars in some estate and they come over totally excited and they tell you about this inheritance you go over and you sit down and you're dear friends and so you just start talking and it's like I get to pay off debt I can pay off some college tuition stuff that's upcoming I can take some trips or I can be generous with others and you're genuinely excited for them and everything that's going on but then all of a sudden you're told oh it's not just mine it's yours also And you'd be like, what? And now all of a sudden your mind is blown. You get to dream these kind of dreams and you're excited. It's yours too. This is what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 4. He is emphasizing that Abraham, the father of the Jews, was made right with God, not by works, not by circumcision, not by the law, not by anything he does, but by something the opposite of those things. Namely, faith. By believing the promise 
that God made to him that he would be the father of many nations. And as you read this, he's addressing, Paul is addressing a Jewish audience who is tempted to think that because they are connected to Abraham by ethnicity, there is some ethnic superiority to them. There is something about them ethnically or religiously that attaches them to everything that Abraham got. And so therefore, it is by works, it is by their ethnicity or by them doing some good deed in Abraham's way, maybe it's circumcision or by obeying the law, that they were going to get what Abraham got. Paul says, no way, no how. And he's obliterating that because he says Abraham was not made right with God by his works, nor by the law, nor by circumcision, nor by anything that he could boast of. Abraham was made right by faith alone. He was made right by simply believing what God told him. By believing that the promise made to him that he would be the father of many nations, he and his offspring, he just took God at his word. And he believed, and it was credited to his account that now Abraham was righteous. But as you read that, you might feel like, okay, he's kind of addressing these Jews who felt like they were attached to Abraham because of their ethnicity. You almost feel like you're on the outside looking in. Okay, that's for them. Not really for us. I'm, I'm glad that Paul is really addressing the Jewish believers in their wrong thinking. But then you flip down and you look at verse chapter 4, verse 22 through 24. And he says, that is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. That means because of faith. Verse 23, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for Next two words, ours also. It's yours too. The medal is yours too. The inheritance is yours too. It's the same idea. The longing of every human heart, whether we know it or not, is that we'd be made right with God. And here he's saying, that can be yours too. And do you see the collective? It's an our thing. What Paul is talking about is that by believing God and taking him at his word, by trusting in him and in his promise of a coming Messiah, that is Jesus Christ, by trusting in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins, you get the promises of God. You're an heir of the whole world. The promise initially made to Abraham was that he would inherit the promised land, right? But what happens is as you continue to read throughout the Old Testament, that becomes a type of what is to come. That is, you inherit the entire world by faith in Jesus, who is the offspring of Abraham. And so now we're a part of a family. If you trust in Jesus, you're a part of a family. Jews and Gentiles alike, you're a part of a family. And us too, you get the promises of God. The promises made to Abraham are yours, and by faith alone, he is your father in that sense. We're a part of a family. And so today, as we look at this passage, we're going to look at what it means to be a part of this family. The passage explains that this family, the family of God, the family is righteous by faith. That's the first point. Family is formed by grace. The second point and third point is the family characterized by hope. We are righteous by faith. 
we are formed by grace and we are characterized by hope and we are in this as one family together. No matter our ethnicity, background, economic status, age, social standing, whatever, we are one family in Christ. Righteous by faith, formed by grace, characterized by hope. Now let me do a quick flyover here because we just started in the middle of a chapter. If you haven't been with us, you're like, okay, why in the world are we here? We start, We usually take books of the Bible, we work straight through them, and so that's where we've been. We've gone from verse 1 of chapter 1, and we're all the way to chapter 4, verse 12, and uh, Pastor Ranjur and Pastor Hunter um, have done a great job. Eric Stishin did a great job. Pastor Travis has done a great job getting us to this point. But what's the flyover version? Paul's in Corinth. He's writing this letter longing to be with this church in Rome. He longs to be with them. Because if you remember, he believed in spiritual rub-off. Like when you rub up against a wall with wet paint, what happens is the paint comes off on you. He believes that happens when we get together spiritually. He believes in spiritual rub-off, that he longs to be in their presence, which is why we need the church, the people of God. I need you, you need me, mutually building one another up. The Spirit of God in you will encourage me. The Spirit of God in me will encourage you. And that can only happen when we are together. Paul says, I long to be with you. And I long that you become a people who proclaim the gospel to one another and to the lost world around you. I so wish I could be there. But until I am, let me write this massive letter to you. And now let me lay some foundations. The foundation is this. That we are all justly deserving of the righteous wrath of God against us because we are unrighteous. We are sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are unlike God in that he is fully glorious, fully righteous. We are unrighteous, filled with sin, and justly deserving the wrath of God. Now, what do we do with that? Well, humanity has tried to say, well, what do I need to be right with God? Paul is laying out the case that what you need is the righteousness of God. I'll say it again. What you and I need to be brought into the presence of God is the righteousness of God. We need the righteousness of God. If we don't get that, we don't have eternal life. If we don't get that, we don't have the presence of God. We don't have his promises for us. We don't get to see his glory. We don't get to be called children. We don't get God fighting for us, but God fighting against us. Without the righteousness of God, we have no hope to be right with God. And so what's humanity done to try to fix this problem? Well, one is denial, right? It's not a river in Egypt, as some lame preacher joke goes <laughs> denial says i'm not that bad i'm just not that bad so why can't i be with god paul's argument cuts the legs out from underneath that you might say i don't deserve it paul's argument cuts the legs out from underneath that then if we know that the righteous standard or that the standard to be right with god is righteousness we might blame others well, the reason I don't deserve it is because of them. They made me do it. And it started in Genesis, Adam and Eve. Or one way we try to solve it is comparison. 
We say, I'm better than my neighbor, and therefore I can be right with God. None of these hold up. Or some will just say, forget this. I don't need to be right with God. I don't need God. I will be a God to myself. Or I will place upon others the weight that only God can handle. And so we place all of our hope on school and degrees and bank accounts and possessions and family or spouse or marriage or kids. And they buckle. They can't hold it. They can't satisfy. And so what do we do? Paul summarizes that there is no way to be righteous before God left to ourselves. <laughs> so I have children. Inevitably, every one of them has said this when I have said a fact. So here's the fact. The fact is this. There's no way to be righteous before God left to ourselves. And the phrase is, yeah, but. Yeah, but, but what about this? Romans chapter 1 to 3 are the yeah, but moments. Where everybody's just like, yeah, but what about this? Yeah, what about Gentiles who don't have the law? How can they be judged? God says, my eternal power and divine nature are seen in creation so that they are without excuse. They have enough when they look out at the world to see there is a God and that he is powerful and worthy of all worship and they suppress that truth. They are without excuse. Yeah, but... Why would all be judged, Paul says, because we have all worshipped the creation rather than the creator. We've stiff-armed God, demeaned him, not given him the glory due his name. Yeah, but of course Gentiles should be judged, Jews would say. Of course they should be judged, but what about us? We're God's chosen people. Paul says, yes, you too deserve the judgment of God. And he sa they say, but yeah, but we're obedient to the law. And they say, kind of. But you aren't justified by your works. And you don't do the law perfectly. And so Romans 3.9 is a summary. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. None is righteous. No, not one. And he goes on to say, that shuts the mouth of every yeah but moment and the whole world may be held accountable to God so in the midst of this despair in the midst of this crisis we have Romans chapter 3 verse 21 look at it righteousness perfect obedience to the standard that God lays out is the only way we can be in the presence of a perfect God Every yeah, but moment has its legs cut out from underneath it. We are all guilty, justly deserving the wrath of God. And then he says this. But now, Romans 3.21, the righteousness of God has been manifested, has been put on full display apart from the law. Although the Bible of that day, the law and the prophets, the writings, they bear witness to it. Well, what is this righteousness that's now been displayed? This righteousness is a person. His name is Jesus Christ. And all those who trust in Jesus get his righteousness given to them. And therefore, we can be right with God.
So what's the summary? The Jews then say, last final yeah but moment, but what about Abraham? What about Abraham? He's our father. He's the goat of all of the Jewish people. Surely, if he is justified by his works, we're attached to it, we can move forward. And he's just like, no. He was not declared righteous by his deeds. Abraham was declared righteous not by doing righteous deeds, that is circumcision or adherence to the law, but by believing the promise made by God that he would be the father of many nations, despite his and his wife's older age. The key marker of Abraham's life was, one word, faith. The key marker of Abraham's life was faith, and by faith, he was declared, put in his account, he was declared right with God. So, now, this gets us to verse 13. Family righteous by faith. Look at verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring. What's the promise, you might ask? That is, he would be the heir of the world. That promise did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. This is a technical term, the righteousness of faith. That is, by Abraham's belief, he was made righteous. Belief in what? Belief in the promise. Okay? So follow it with me. Verse 13, God makes a promise to Abraham. You'll be the heir of the entire world, the father of many nations. Abraham... Underneath the stars, God tells him, your descendants will be as many as the stars are in the sky. Did Abraham say, you're off your rocker. You're a fool. Or did he say, I don't know how, but I trust you. He trusted him. He trusted him. And because he trusted him, it was credited to him. That now he was right with God. Not by doing for God. But by receiving from God. Faith is not a work in and of itself. It's not you choosing God. It is a receiving of all that God is for you in Christ. It is Abraham like this saying, I can't make this happen, but I receive the gift of your grace to me that you're going to use me to accomplish this promise, this purpose. So look at verse 13, hone in with me. The promise to Abraham that he and his offspring would be the heir of the entire world did not come through the law, did not come by doing what the law required, but through the righteousness of faith. Verse 14, for if the adherence of the law... If it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, then faith is emptied and the promise is like a voided check. If you can be good enough to be ushered into the presence of God, then it's not by faith. These are diametrically opposed. Oil and water, they just don't mix. It's one or the other. And so he says, If it is by what you can do that you're an heir of the entire world, faith is emptied of its power, and the promise, the promise that God made to you is like a voided check. You just won't cash. 
verse 15. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is transgression. Now, what does he mean here? When he says, verse 15, for the law brings wrath, what does the law do? If you remember, the law exposes sin, but it doesn't have, this is Ron Jure's language, but it doesn't have the power to expel sin. So what does that mean? Romans chapter 7 says it this way, the law puts names on your sin. So it's not that people weren't sinning before the law or can't sin without the law. Romans chapter 2 says Gentiles do that all the time and will be rightly judged by it. But what does the law do? It brings names to sin. So before the law came, you were lying, cheating, adultery, murder, whatever. When the law comes, now there's language. Oh, that action I just did, that's called a lie. That action I just did is called stealing. That action I just did, that's adultery, that's murder. It's now got a, it's got a label on it. And transgression here is used as a technical term to break an explicit command. So where the law doesn't exist, you don't have transgression, meaning there's not a line clearly drawn that you break. It doesn't mean sin doesn't exist. Here he says, the law then brings wrath because you know now the standard line and you just push it, push it, push it. It's a conversation I have regularly as a parent. It's like, okay, we give a standard, and for some reason, even if we move the standard and we make it a gracious standard, it's just like, can I just have just a little bit more? Just a little bit more. Can I just push the line just a little bit more? This is what the law does. It creates a standard, and then our hearts, before you just look down on your kids as if they're the only sinners in the room, then our hearts push the standard. We just want a little bit more. A little bit more. And so this is what Paul says here. And so because of that, Abraham is or the, Paul is telling us that the only way to be right with God is by faith. This phrase in verse 13, the righteousness of faith. And that's why it's so powerful later on, verse 22, I've already read it, of, the same, of chapter 4, when he says that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone but for ours also if you trust in Christ the righteousness of Jesus is credited to your account you are fully accepted and loved a treasured possession the scriptures say you are his how did this work? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ became sin with our sin, so that we might become righteous with God's righteousness. I'll say it again. It's a quote from John Stott. Christ became sin with our sin put upon him, so that we might become righteous with God's righteousness. We get his righteousness because Jesus took our sin. The great exchange. 
and it was credited to us as a gift. Now, we have to ask the question, why does this matter? Honestly, many of you have grown up in the church. You've been a part of the church for a while. And it might feel a little bit like a broken record. I get it. I'm bad. I deserve judgment. Jesus is my only hope. I trust in him. I'm made right with God. Woo! That's good news. But we keep saying it every single week. We could be there. I get it. I mean, this whole conversation could have just like tempted to lull you to sleep because I get it. Now, the question is, why does it matter? Why does it matter that you and I are righteous by faith alone? Well, what it matters for is that not only does it mean that our whole life is contingent upon the work of another. It means our whole life has got to be centered around faith in Jesus. Not just this one moment, but our whole life is, yes, I trust you. Yes, I trust you. Yes, I trust you. Anything else breeds proud insecurity. But a life that is righteous by faith breeds humble security. If it is left to you in your works... You will have to boast of what you do to a lot of people in order that they might accept you, in order because deep down you're insecure that you're not being accepted by God. You become proud, boasting in how good you are, and that stems from your insecurity because you don't feel this confidence that you are Christ's, not because you performed well yesterday, but because you trusted in him and all of your brokenness and all of your weakness. And he says, I love you by faith alone. Until you are convinced that his love for you is solely because you trust his word, you trust his promises, then you will spend your life trying to work your way out of your poor performances. And I know, like I know my own life, we're filled with them. Amen? We are. The life of faith that is justified, the life that is righteousness given to us by faith alone. If we don't believe that, we will be proudly insecure rather than humbly secure. When you know you are made righteous by faith alone, you do not have to boast of all of your greatness because you have already settled that matter. He is great and I owe everything to him. And there's a security there. I am accepted in my rottenness, not because I was good enough then to be accepted. I am accepted because I trust his goodness in my place. I trust that he took all of my sin, everything I've ever committed, and they were laid upon the shoulders of Jesus. And he took it, and it was crushed, and he has delivered me. He paid the penalty. He's been raised from the dead. So that now by faith in him, I get his righteousness. I'm accepted because of Christ, not because of me. Dear friends, it affects everything. And oh, I pray that God would make us humbly secure rather than proudly insecure. And what's interesting is I want you to look at verse 19 as we're talking about faith. When Paul is talking about Abraham, he says he did not weaken in faith. He didn't weaken in faith. 
But if you look down at verse 20, it says, but he grew strong in his faith, which means what? Although we trust in the promises of Jesus that he's going to deliver, our faith can do this. Up and down, all the time. Do you feel that? Yes, you do. If you have a spiritual pulse, you feel that. That sometimes you're really, really weak, and other times you feel strong. How do we have faith that the trajectory, although stock market-like, is upward? That it keeps growing stronger and stronger. Dear friends, it's time with the one who has declared you righteous by faith alone. you got to spend time with him and his word. Look at verse 13 says it was the promise made to Abraham. How do you know what the promise is? You're just going to think about it in your brain like, okay, promise. Let's see, wonder what he could promise. What do I want? Well, he could promise me a new car. That's not how promises work. The promise is defined by the Bible. The promise is that by faith alone, you'll be the heir of the entire world. Much better than a car, I might add. An heir of the entire world. How do you know what the promises are? You spend time with Jesus and his word. You spend time with Jesus' people. You spend time rehearsing. And here's what happens. It's like a record. Old records, got these needle that you put on there. Some of you know it because vintage pulls record players back into prominence, you know. We had a record player that was beast. It was ginormous. Like it was this big and, you know, it was a piece of furniture. You were committed to this thing. And, you know, you lifted up the lid and there's this record player here and you had these records that were stored in it, you know, and you put it. And one of my favorite was Michael Jackson Thriller, you know, wore that beast out. So I took it and set it on top of this record player and you put the needle down. But inevitably, I was a, you know, my sister and I would play rowdily at the house. And when you would jump like that, the record, and it would go to another song, you know. And I didn't want it to go to that song. I wanted to stay on the song I was on. But it would, and go over there. This is our heart. We need the promises of God to be reminded you are loved. Not one thing you do removes you from the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. But what happens is the world, it shakes you. And it goes to a song that is, I'm trash. I should not be accepted. I'm not worth fighting for. I keep messing up the same way over and over again. I wish I was a better husband. I wish I was a better father. I wish I was a better student. I wish I was better at my job. I wish I was a better neighbor. And it's just over and over. And that's the song that doesn't seem to get skipped over. No matter how much you jump, it only seems to stay on the song. And it hurts. Without the intentionality of picking up that needle and moving it back to the song of the promises of God, the record will keep playing over and over. And what happens is it breeds cynicism and pessimism and criticism and all kinds of other bad isms. We have to intentionally place ourselves before the promises of God and rehearse. We are righteous by faith alone. You are accepted and loved by faith alone. We have to say no more to some things that are lying to us. The world is telling us over and over, 
The world is better than Christ. Sex is better than Christ. Money is better than Christ. Earthly victory is better than Christ. Being first is better than Christ. Being praised by people is better than Christ. More possessions is better than Christ. Financial security is better than Christ. You just keep hearing it over and over. You don't have to go anywhere to hear that message. This is the unique mission of the church to say there's a better song. There's a better song being sung over you and for you and that Christ is better than everything else. And so this life of faith, it's not a faith that is a one-time moment that gets you in the door and then, no, it's a faith that forms and characterizes your life moving forward. The goal of the church The goal of your marriage, the goal of your relationships with your friends, the goal of your parenting, the goal of life is simply this, to remind one another you can trust Jesus. That's the goal. You can trust him. You can take him at his word. You have a car wreck. I need to be reminded you can trust that God is at work, even if the car is totaled. Unexpected financial struggle? I need to be reminded you can trust God will provide. His word tells us he will. Relationship that is painful? You can trust Jesus to be with you and to comfort you. A person lets you down, you can trust Jesus will satisfy you and he will never let you down. A person doesn't keep their word and you are disappointed, you can trust that Jesus will always keep his word and he never disappoints. The goal is that we remind one another that faith is not only this transaction, it's not that at all. Faith is believing the promises of God, that you might be in the presence of God, receive all that God is for you in Christ Jesus. Dear friends, are we convinced we're justified by faith alone? If so, our our homes, our lives, our self-talk, our church will look different. We're not only a family formed by faith, but we're formed by grace. I want you to look at verse 16. He says, that is why it depends on faith. What's the that is? If you remember the flow of the argument, it doesn't depend on the law. The adherents of the law don't become justified by adhering to the law. You become justified by faith. He says, because the law brings wrath, (laughs) the law exposes your sin. It doesn't make you righteous. It shows you your unrighteousness. That's why it depends on faith, verse 16. You see that? Now, why did God set it up this way? Why did he say it has to depend on faith? He says, in order that the promise may rest on, what's the next word? Grace, okay? Let's say it again. Just need everybody here because there's one word that you you had. This was your one moment to shine, and it it wasn't so shining. Okay, I'm going to read it, and I'm going to pause. I want you to say that word. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace. Amen. That was good. I like that. It rests on grace. Yes. Amen. And be guaranteed to all his offspring. What is grace? 
What is grace? If it rests on works, it's not grace. Because you're paid what you do, right? It's a laborer who works, and yeah, you get your check. It's not grace. You earned it. But if it's on faith, here's what one author said. Faith takes, grace gives. So faith is receiving what you can't give to yourself, but it has to be given to you. So if it's by faith, you're receiving something which assumes there's a giver. You follow that? If you have to receive, there's a giver. And what's interesting is the very word promise. We think about the benefits of the promise. Oh, we will inherit the whole world. But doesn't promise assume that someone is making a promise? A promise means there's a promiser. It's meant to highlight that God is the one initiating his kindness to us. He's giving a gift. A gift of grace that we receive by faith. Faith is not a work. It's a receiving. Now, what is grace? I looked at, uh, did some studying on grace. Um, was helped by the Bible Project people. Uh, one guy's name is Tim Mackey. Um, but they did a study on um, chain or uh, grace in the Old Testament. Here's some things that you see. We use language like this, grace, like we have several words, graceful. That would mean like that deer that you saw running out in the field was graceful, right? And there's actually a verse in the Old Testament that talks about that deer is full of grace. And what does that mean? Well, it means you saw its beauty and it kind of pulled out a response from you. It was like, wow, that's beautiful. My daughter and I were riding bikes on the greenway the other day. And in the first five minutes of riding, there was a little rabbit over there. I was like, look at the rabbit over there. And she's like, oh, so cute. And then we turned the corner. There were two more over here. Oh, look at those. That's amazing. So then we rounded one more corner. And no exaggeration, from me to that stand, there was a deer sitting there with a branch in its mouth. And like, okay, like it's right there. I was like, mercy, look right there. That's my daughter's name. That's not just an exclamation. Mercy, you know. That's <laughs> like, look, there's a deer right there. And what it does is it's just like, that's so beautiful. That, that's just amazing. Like, it does that. Like, there's pleasure that erupted in my heart because I saw the deer. This is actually what the Old Testament is getting at. If something is graceful, it's beautiful, and it creates pleasure in the heart to look at it. Well, there's another angle that something is gracious might be a language we use. So let's take the book of Esther. The king that Esther was going to go to had looked out and said the Jews should be annihilated. Esther is the only voice that might gain a favorable ear. So Esther goes to a king who's already said the Jews aren't worth keeping around. And it says that Esther, Esther was seeking grace from the king. And she found favor, grace, in his eyes because she was beautiful. 
not because the Jews were beautiful. He had already said anathema to them, but he saw Esther, and he showed grace to a people because she went and advocated for them. Joseph's brothers, they went to Joseph to find grace in his eyes. They were ugly and rotten. They sold him into slavery. But Joseph showed them grace, undeserved. So now let's pull it together. What is this grace that Paul is speaking of? Well, first of all, it's an act of generosity. The greatest generosity is seen when the recipient is not worthy of it. You follow that? They're not worthy of it, yet you give it anyway. But grace is also speaking to pleasurable to the eyes, delighting in with the heart. So a phrase that might encapsulate this is unmerited favor. Why don't you say it with me? Unmerited favor. This is God's grace. It's God's help. It's a generous gift to the unworthy that he covers sins. But it's also a gift, a generous gift of God's righteousness given to us. Jesus is the Esther, so to speak, who comes in our place, whose beauty and righteousness is given to us, and therefore we're not annihilated because of the beauty of Jesus, his righteousness given to us. But grace is also an expression of God looking at you and saying, I love what I see. I love what I see. I love you as my child. When I look at you, I have pleasure or delight that comes over my heart. You might be like, I don't know if that's true. Old Testament uses this phrase, found favor in the eyes of. That means found grace in the eyes of 47 times. Whenever it is used, it is always someone who is subordinate or vulnerable. Which means when someone, you find grace in the eyes of someone, that someone is over you and they give you grace. Does that make sense? You follow? So you're a recipient, you're a subordinate, or you're vulnerable. 110 out of 170 times, it's about God showing us grace. He's the superior, we're the vulnerable subordinate, and he sees you as he sees a radiant sunset. He sees you as he sees a beautiful necklace. He sees you as he sees a precious child because he, when he sees you, he sees the beautiful, radiant, precious righteousness of his son, Jesus. And we have found favor in God's eyes by faith alone by faith alone what's interesting is in rome it was a it was a really deep shame and honor culture shame and honor culture meant that when you gave a gift to someone you actually expected something in return there was a whole manual written about how to give a gift to someone else so that they would give a gift back to you and it would leverage a way to rise up socially or politically. So when you gave a gift, there was an expectation that someone would pay you back. 
And if you gave a gift to someone who couldn't pay it back, it was a sign of a lack of judgment. So when God puts his reputation on the line and he says, I'm going to give to you and you can't pay me back, he knows he could be charged with a lack of judgment. This is the culture in which he's speaking in, I'm going to give you grace. And he knows you couldn't pay him back ever. But instead, his grace is scandalous. It is God opening himself up to the charge that he's going to lack judgment by loving the unlovely. And instead, he gives righteousness, eternal life, the promise to inherit the whole world, knowing that no one could pay it back. Do you believe this? With all the rain that I hear in the background, and it's so distracting right now for you probably and sometimes me. Can you believe? Can you believe that the word grace means he gives you a gift that you did not earn? And even though you were unlovely and could never pay it back, in the midst of a culture that might say he is a fool for giving grace to somebody who can never pay back, he does it anyway to show how much he loves you. And he does it by looking at his son. By looking at his son and saying, my son is beautiful, radiant, and therefore when I look at you, it's like looking at a sunset. It's adoring you. And yes, it is raining outside. I do want to give you some quotes. I want to give you some quotes because if we are a family formed by grace, if that really is God's grace, not only that he has covered our sin and given us righteousness, but when he looks at you, there's pleasure and delight in his heart. Do you believe that? Then it affects how we love one another. Here's a quote by Marilyn Robinson. Love is holy because it is like grace. The unworthiness of its object is never really what matters. So, if we're a people of grace, shown grace not because we were lovely, but because even we're unlovely, lovely, that doesn't matter, then what does it mean about our grace towards one another? When the person sitting next to you, the person in this room, the person in your home, your roommate, they're not lovely. What does that say about how you treat them? Love is holy because it's like grace. The unworthiness of the object never really matters. I've been reading a book. This is the book here, Family Discipleship by Matt Chandler and Adam Griffin. It is a great book on just different ways to approach growing your kids in godliness and being godly parents. But here's a quote that struck me from Ann Voskamp. And she says this. The moment when I am most repelled by a child's behavior, that is my sign to draw the very closest to that child. That is grace. The very moment we were the most unlovely, unworthy of God's affection, He comes to us. Jesus Christ lives among us, 
takes on the, the punishment that we deserve, dies in our place, was raised from the dead, his righteousness given to us by faith alone. He loves us, and that is grace. When you should be most repelling, he's drawing near. And if we don't think God treats us that way, no wonder we don't treat others that way. But if we are so blown away that in our mess, God doesn't push you away and say, get your act together, then you can be with me. God no says, when you are at your worst, I pull you tighter. Because when I see you by faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone, I see the radiant beauty of my son. So when I see you, I delight in you. You don't repel me. When I see you, I see a beautiful sunset or a radiant piece of jewelry. I see you. And when I see you, my heart leaps with affection. That's why Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord our God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with loud singing. Quiet you by his love. This is our God. And so what does it mean to be a church of grace? Formed by grace. A home of grace. What does it mean to treat your roommates with grace? What does it mean? Are we a safe place where when people wrong us or wrong others, that they know that when they come to us, we will not push them away, but we will draw them near. Repentance must be safe. Not safe to sin. Safe to be received even when you're a sinner. To not be pushed away. To not look down on them with a judgmental eye. But to remember, you have been given grace. And if grace is what formed us as individuals and as a church, grace is how we should treat one another. And so, I just pray. I pray that when we deal with one another, we are not characterized by judgment or harshness, but by gentleness and compassion. If we are known for our criticism rather than our encouragement, we've forgotten grace. If we are cataloging past failures and holding on to them and walking in anger and distancing when people sin, when that's more common than acceptance, we have forgotten grace. May we learn from Ann Voskamp, more importantly, from Paul, the moment when I'm most repelled by a child or a person's behavior is the sign I need to draw the very closest to them because they need to see grace. And when you trust Jesus and you know that he's made you righteous and you are loved like this, showered by his grace, then you have hope that no matter what you face, you can endure. And this is why Paul says that Abraham hoped against hope. Hoped against hope is a very weird phrase. Hoped against hope. What does that mean? It means you've got a hope that a glorious future is coming, but now you're living a life where everything says, I don't know if that's the case. 
Your life keeps battering up against, this is the hope that I'm longing for. This is where I'm going. All the promises seem to be in jeopardy because your life is hard. A hope against hope. What was his hope against hope? <laughs> this phrase makes me laugh every time. His body was as good as dead. <laughs> I don't recommend talking about people that way. <laughs> but that's what it is in the Bible. <laughs> you know, he knew his body was as good as dead. Hope against hope. Isn't that what it says? In hope he believed against hope that he'd be the father of many nations. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. That was the other hope against hope. Sarah couldn't have children. No matter what it is in your life, what is that that seems to be working against hope? Can't get ahead financially. Marriage keeps to be a grinding struggle kids don't seem to be obeying. I can't seem to get through my school or my degree. I struggle to find a relationship that I could call somebody my friend. Whatever it is, it feels like hope against hope. And if you trust that he can make you righteous by faith alone, and if you know you're a recipient of his grace and he loves you, then you have to know if he didn't spare his own son, but gave him over for you, he'll graciously give you everything you need. You have hope even against hopeless situations this has been a vacation season for some and I can just tell you what it's done in my heart when you go to the beach and you sit out and you look at the ocean it can make you think look at how great God is but it can also make you think that beach house is really nice and I think I could get used to living around here and, uh, oh, wait, look at what, all of a sudden, my gaze shifts from glory to, there's some earthly things that I want to grip onto. And Abraham's hope was sustained against all the trials precisely because he looked at this earth and said, it is not my Savior. I'm made for another world. So I end by reading some scripture about what is our hope. So just let these words hit you, and we're done. Hebrews 11, 8 through 16, tells us about Abraham's faith and his hope. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going, by faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of the heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of the sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. This is our life now. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. 
If they had been thinking of that land which they had gone out, that beach scene or those mountains, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The unique mission of the church is to remind one another this is not home. You can trust him, and he has poured out his grace because he loves you. And so one day, Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, here's what he said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. And he said, it's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty, which is all of us. I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The unique mission of the church is to remind one another, Jesus can be trusted, you're a recipient of grace, and that your hope will not put you to shame. There is a city to come. This is not your home, but one day we'll be with Jesus forever face to face. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being with us. I love you, and I thank you for keeping your word to us. And I ask that you would form us as a family, that not only live in the reality of that we are righteous by faith alone, we are receivers of grace alone, and we have a hope that will not disappoint us, but that we would extend that to others. We would be a place, a people, a people that are characterized by trusting in you and reminding one another that you're trustworthy. We need you. We need one another. I pray that we remind one another by not pushing away, but by drawing in, that we remind one another of grace. And that, God, you would give us the ability to believe that when you look at us, even in our failures, that the trajectory of our lives is faith. Like, when you look at us, you love us. And I just pray, oh God, that you... Help us to believe. Please help us to believe. And if we're recipients of grace and if we trust you, then we hope. We hope that one day we'll see you face to face in all of your glory. Let's just take a moment in this time right now to ask God to show us not what 30 steps are towards him, but what's one. Maybe it's just rehearsing these promises rather than rehearsing the bad song of the skipped record, the trials of life. Maybe it's meditating on grace. Maybe it's just asking God to help you remember this is not your home. We're made for a better world so that we can 
seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and trust that he's going to add everything we need. Let's take a minute of reflection and then we'll sing about the finished work of Jesus.